and he's handcuffed to the bed and he's screaming and screaming and crying, screaming so hard, spits just coming out of his mouth, calling himself a murderer. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to another episode of Stigma-Free Vet Zone, the podcast. We are going to the far north woods of Wisconsin to visit with the mother of an Iraq War veteran, two-tour Iraq War veteran. But this segment is really interesting to me because we are we are speaking with a military family member as opposed to the actual veteran or soldier who went off to war. So we're going up north to visit Heidi Carlson, and Heidi is the mother of two sons, one of whom is a combat veteran. She has worked in social services for almost 30 years and is currently a community uh, outreach worker for the school district. Heidi's six grandchildren are the loves of her life. So let's go up to the Northwoods and welcome Heidi Carlson. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks, Mike. And yes, my sons are the loves of my life as well. But I think anybody who is a grandparent would understand that part. Sure. It's just amazing. Well, we're certainly anxious to hear a little bit more in a podcast from military family members. And you are certainly uh, have had your experience with that. So let's start out by just telling us a little bit about Heidi Carlson when you were a girl, the young girl and your family and where you're from. And we'll continue from there. Well, I grew up in a small town, Minnesota, in uh, Pine City, Minnesota, and regular family, mom, dad, one brother. Um, we lived on a hobby farm, and it was a good, I had a good childhood. It was healthy, and and um, I knew that my dad had been in the Marines, and he had a little bit of a hearing impairment just because of the work that they did on the planes. So that's kind of what I knew about military. Uh, although I did my grandpa, I knew my grandpa was in world war two and um, he didn't talk about it at all, but we were really patriotic, small town America, um, hardworking, you know, good grades in school, really honored veterans as well. So now you've come to having two sons, and one of your sons decides to come home and tell mom it's time for him to join the military. Take us from there. Well, I'm going to backtrack one step. Before that even happened, when I went off to college, I went, and this is part of like the military uh, heritage where we honored military, and I went in on an Air Force ROTC scholarship And so I planned to be in the Air Force, and I did two years and then took a different route. And so David, I met David's father, and we got married, my son's father, and we got married. He was a Vietnam vet, and we had some difficulties in that marriage. And there was, you know, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of uh, uh, things that were related to his combat experience. And so that was a different picture for me of the military. Um, And I think that sometimes I accepted things because I I had such respect for the military and knowing that he served the country that I took some things that I shouldn't have. Um, We had David and we lived with, we stayed together as a family for about another four years after that. And then I separated from him and became a single parent and then moved all the way up, you know, live life, raise the boys. 
And David was getting into some trouble through high school. And we have a history of, of alcoholism in our family. And so there were some issues with that. And when David said that he had joined the military, for some reason, I was thinking, well, that's going to clean him up. <laughs> that's going to mature him and, you know, maybe change the course of his life for better. And so I was very, very proud. He did two deployments. The, the first deployment, we did the big send off at the, at the base. I think it was maybe called Douglas Base in Wisconsin. And he was a National Guard. And so all of us families joined together to um, to send our soldiers off for training. And this is, I have some key moments in this whole story where the memories of my experience are so intense emotionally that they literally, like they still live in me like that, where I have a physical reaction to them. And this was one of the times when I, I'm sending my son off, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm scared. I'm proud of him. Um, other family members were there. We're all gathered around him. And when it was time for them to walk into formation before they went off on the plane, a little kid grabbed his their dad's leg and started screaming, Daddy, don't go. Please don't go, and started crying. And that was like a ripple effect throughout all of our families. Everybody started crying. And we were sobbing, like just trying not to because we're, we're not wanting to our soldiers to go off with that last memory. And, and then we all stood at the gate watching the plane take off. And we had these little American flags that we were waving. And all you could hear is like quiet crying. And there the plane took off. And we're all just standing there. We, then we didn't even really know what to do. Then everybody left. And so that was a that was kind of the beginning of it. Um, I didn't know a lot of what happened during his first deployment. There wasn't a whole lot of com communication. I did know he was in an area, and I knew in where in Iraq, kind of a general area that he was stationed. And there was no support anywhere. I'm working my regular job. My mom and dad are are you know there. We we're kind of trying to support each other, but there wasn't like any kind of family support. It was the National Guard. And I felt like at that time, if you remember in the beginning of the war, after the news, they would run the list of everybody who had been killed in action. And as a mom, it was, I had this thought, like, I have to sit through this every night for the other moms out there. And it was just this, I felt like I had to do it. And then not having communication with David, I had so much anxiety. And then I heard about a big explosion that happened in the area he was at. And I had my first panic attack. And it got really bad, the anxiety. And I actually had to go see a doctor about it. And so there's this whole piece you don't know. You know people are getting killed. You have no idea what's happening to your baby. Cause you know, I don't care how old your child gets, they will always be your baby. And at that time I was working in the police department and I would go over to the little post office across the street and mail care packages for him and his buddies, cookies, whatever. I would pack that box full. And, and that post guy would always say, well, thank you. Thank your son for his service. And, you know, I was really proud of him, and I'm scared at the same time. And so kind of moving through that fast forward, when he came back from that deployment, um, he was sober. He was very mature. It didn't seem like there were a lot of negative consequences. Um, you know, he was living his life. He went back to college. He seemed to be doing well, and he didn't tell me much he wouldn't really tell him, talk about any of it. And so I didn't know that he had been affected the way he had. And I did know that he would do things like right away he bought a motorcycle and he would go like over 100 miles an hour riding his motorcycle. Some really risky stuff. But I kind of thought, well, that's just what guys do. <laughs> I, I'm assuming you were not on the motorcycle with him. <laughs> well, no, actually, there was one time I was... 
He's like, mom, you want to ride? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie myself. You know, I love roller coasters. And so I got on the back and he, <laughs> he took off. He went from like zero to 60 in one second. And I'm holding on to him and I'm screaming and like <laughs> spit was flying out of my mouth. I just, we were going so fast and I'm like pounding on the pounding him on the back. Stop, stop, stop. But we were laughing so hard. So that was, it was kind of like one of those moments, you know. But, but along with that, Heidi, when, when he did come home, was he communicative uh, just in general? Was he nice to be around, friendly to be around, or, or at least uh, the same as he had been before, before the he war? He was more mature. He was sober, which was a big deal because before he left, he had major, major issues with alcoholism, like all of us. Um, and so it seemed like he was much better off. I didn't know that he was having nightmares or, you know, I didn't know some of the stuff that he was going through. He didn't want anybody to worry about him. But then he got to the point where he just, he kept talking about going back. The relationship he was in at the time, she was like, absolutely not. No, we have this chance now. You know, they had been dating for a very long time. And he just kept insisting he wanted to go back. He needed to be back there with his brothers. You know, he felt guilty being home. And we were like, we didn't, nobody wanted him to go back. Like, you did your duty. Now just finish college. You'll have a happy life here. And he went ahead and he signed up for another tour, not out of the National Guard in Wisconsin, but it was an attachment to, I think it was a unit out of Kentucky or something. He just wanted to get back there any way he could. And he was always in infantry units. And so that was very scary. And then um, before he left on that one, he had relapsed and he was missing like he, he was down in New Orleans partying one last big hurrah before they left. And somehow he wandered off somewhere, who knows. And he was missing for a period of time. And I'm like, what on earth has happened? Eventually someone found him. I don't even remember the whole story. But it was pretty scary. And it's like, well, maybe he needs this discipline. You know, he's so good at what he does. He He was so proud of what he did. You know, like so proud of what a good soldier he was and he had been promoted. And so I thought, well, maybe that's he needs that as for a meaning in his life right now. And so this time when he left, it wasn't the big group of people. It was just a couple of his family members at the airport saying goodbye to him. I remember I had my arms around his neck and just hugging him and I started crying and I couldn't let go. Like, I couldn't actually just let go of him. And he kind of took my hands down. He's like, Mom, I got to go. And so he walked off, and I'm crying. And the other people, I think, was a couple of, you know, a couple family members. And we're all just kind of consoling each other. And he left. And so for this deployment, I didn't have any communication with him. Previously, he would write letters uh, here and there. There was, um, you know, a few phone calls here and there. But this deployment, there really wasn't much of anything. And I didn't realize what he had signed up for and the action that he had seen or what was happening. And when he came back from this deployment, I will never, this is another one of those moments of my life, it's visceral I met him at the airport, and he came walking in with two bottles of wine from the plane. Everybody, like, fed them booze the whole time back. And he had these bottles of wine that they let him take off. And he had what I started to call the Iraq laugh. And his eyes were just, like, staring, and, like, there wasn't any life in them. And he's doing this laugh, like, <laughs> I, your son didn't come back this time. Boy, they got me. Your son didn't come back. And he was doing this laugh. And that moment, I'm like, God help me. We're speaking with Heidi Carlson, the mother of uh, David Carlson, who uh, an infantry soldier in, in Iraq, uh, two tours. And he's coming home now for the second time. 
But is he saying this to you? David is saying this to you? Your son, this is not your same son. My goodness. Yeah, he was like, your son didn't come back this time, Mom. <laughs> yeah, they got me this time. Your son isn't back. And I'm looking at this completely different, like, oh, I, I don't even have words to describe it. And we get his luggage, and he's with a couple other soldiers, and they're like, well, you take care and look out for him. And he kind of had a tough one. And I'm like, what has happened? And we're in the car and I'm driving him halfway to into Wisconsin. And then his grand, his grandparents were meeting us halfway and they were going to bring him back into Wisconsin because I was living in Minneapolis. And the whole way he's talking about, yeah, <laughs> that, that laugh. And yeah, this is different. Boy, I mean, it didn't really make sense. He was so drunk. He was so drunk. And but he just kept talking about he didn't come back this time. And so when I met my mom, I'm like, Mom, it's bad. I don't know what happened, but it's really bad. And so he got out and we switched cars. And then he went with my mom. And I was just left with this, what's happened to my son? And then he got back to Wisconsin and he disappeared for a few days. And my parents were so worried. We were all just so worried. We just didn't know. Um, While he was gone, both my mom and I set up. We found him a really nice apartment in uptown Minneapolis. He wanted to go back. He wanted to go to school at the University of Minnesota. So we got everything set up on our end, got furniture in there, a whole bunch of stuff, just getting his place ready for him. And so he had disappeared for a little bit when he was in Wisconsin, but eventually he moved into the cities and he was supposed to be at the U of M in classes and then living here in this really nice apartment. And it, what began was this daily, nightly, never knowing what was happening. Like, is he alive? Is he going to kill himself? Is he, he would call me. I'm going to kill myself. And I'm working at a a therapy program. I was working with uh, men in this, domestic abuse program. And I'm doing all these groups, I'm doing this very stressful work. And I would be at my desk, and he would call me, I'm done, this is it. And I would go racing to his apartment, it was maybe about 10 minutes away, knocking on his door, couple times he answered one time I walked in and there was his pistol on the um, on the end table, like where he'd been sitting and, and spinning it and playing Russian roulette. I mean, I didn't know that at the time. I saw the pistol. I grab it. I put it in my purse. And I'm like, David, David, we have to go to the VA. Let's go to the VA. Please just come with me. And this time he went. And we got there, and they were talking about checking him in. And then he changed his mind. Never mind. I don't want to be here. So we went back to the house. And this was like every few days, I was calling the cops constantly for these welfare checks. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen. I would call the VA. Nobody would really talk to me because I'm a mom. They wouldn't give me any information. You know, he had gone a couple times into the VA, but he would always check himself out. And he would go back to the apartment. He was drinking. I would come over. I would go over there. I would check to see if he had food. You know, I'm like, are you eating? You know, I'm worried about those kind of things. I look in his fridge. There's a bottle of Grey Goose vodka. You know, that's it. That's all he had in there. And and I would get these horrible phone calls. And then his girlfriend at that time, she was still trying to be with him, you know, still sticking with him. And she would call me. I don't know where David is, what's going on. And eventually she broke up. And then it was me and my parents there trying to figure out how to help David. But I was there in the cities. And I, I would have the cops go do a welfare check. He would be so furious with me. I mean, he would cuss me out and everything for daring to bring the police. But I thought he was going to kill himself. I didn't know what was going to happen. And it kind of, it just kept escalating. Then he was going to go to, he was going to go back and go to Afghanistan but then he got drunk and he kind of blew that opportunity. So in and out of the VA, in and out of the VA, I actually tried to do a commitment. You know, I was like, 
he can't take care of himself. You've got to commit him. You've got to, you've just got to take him and make him be in treatment. You know, he's going to die. And so at this point, nobody would talk to me. And I'm looking for, like, prior to this, I had been in the Blue Star Moms group. And that was very patriotic. And we would send care packages and do flag stuff, you know, march and parades. But everybody, it was more of a rah-rah kind of thing. I'm like, oh, my God, they're not going through what I'm going through. Who do I talk to? And I started looking online because by this time, David's in and out of jail as well. And the biggest legal thing then that happened was when he was he was going down an alleyway in Minneapolis shooting his gun, shooting at the at the lights. And the cops all responded. They tackled him. The sergeant that was there was actually someone I worked with in the police department. So he knew that it was David. And he called me. It was maybe three o'clock in the morning. He said, Heidi, I got bad news. We got David. We're taking him to the VA. I know he needs help. He's in he's in a really bad shape. You gotta go down there. And so I get up and I go down to um I go down to the VA and and when I walked in, the nurse is like, he's in really bad shape. I just want to prepare you. And I'm like, oh no, what's gonna happen? You know, what's happening? And I go in, he's hand so he's full of puke because he had been drinking so much, he puked on himself. And he's completely dirty from, uh, you know, they tackled him and from being on the ground. And he's handcuffed to the bed. And he's screaming and screaming and crying, screaming so hard, spits just coming out of his mouth, calling himself a murderer. And this is another one of those gut-wrenching memories that I literally feel nauseous to this day thinking about it where it took it, it for a long time when I would walk into the VA I actually wanted to throw up because of this one memory I sat on that bed beside him and I took him so he's handcuffed and he's screaming and I took his head to my chest and I'm just going I love you it's okay shh. and I'm rubbing his head like he's a baby I'm rocking him and I'm trying to calm, you know, calm him down. And he is screaming and screaming about being a murderer. And I just sat on that bed rocking him and just trying to, shh, it's okay, I love you, it's okay, shh. And there was nothing I could do. I had to leave him. You know, I had to leave him there. They were going to take him to, they were going to admit him into the VA. And I had to go to work that morning. I mean, I'm sobbing. I'm sobbing. I'm like, I, I, my heart was broken into a million pieces, and, and so I'm, I go to work and I tell, I'm telling my, my coworkers what happened, and they're crying. You know, everybody's crying with me. It was just so intense, and. So he did, he was in, in the inpatient at the VA, and I'm meanwhile trying to find some support somewhere. They had military, you know, the white stuff for the wives, counseling through the VA and the vet center and all of that. But as a mom, there really was nothing. So he's in the VA, he wasn't arrested. They were just kind of holding off. Um, they weren't going to do anything. They wanted him in treatment. And so, but he was having all these legal interactions. And so as I'm searching online, I find this little Yahoo group that uh, a woman named Jamie had. She was experiencing the same thing with her son. He was being arrested. He actually had been arrested and he was in custody and he had been shooting off his gun, um, you know, kind of sim little similar stuff. I started talking to her online and in her little group, it seemed like, we found each other, us, us moms in this situation. And out of that, I made lifelong friends. We're still friends on Facebook. And all of us moms were in the same situation. Our sons who had been, you know, war heroes and excelled when they were over in either Iraq or Afghanistan, came back and could not function and were in addictions and in trouble with the law some were already in prison, 
some were waiting in jail, and then David was beginning that route. And we just kind of clung to each other. And that's kind of what started my support system. Um, unfortunately for me, and, and one thing I think about, when I, and I talk to moms sometimes, um, not as much as I used to, but I always say, make sure you take care of yourself in this, because I know that I, I didn't have that support system and I turned to alcohol and I was drinking a lot myself. In fact, that became a real big issue in my life. And so here we were, we got stuck in this pattern. It was like, okay, he's going to be okay. He's in the VA, but he's not in the VA. He's not okay anymore. He would leave. He would run away. He'd get kicked out for using. I mean, this was the court over the course now of we're going through years, something that I thought would be maybe a year. We'll get through this year. We're starting to go down the road now a little bit. Let me just ask you, Heidi, now that you bring up how long this has been, how long has this been now from the time he's come home to where you are now? And how old is David at this period? It was in 2008. So he's 36 now. So what is that? 12 years ago. So he was still in his 20s. Yeah. So he's a, you know, he's, he's a young guy. And he was my baby. And from the time he came home from the end of his second deployment to where you are now in the VA, how long, how many years is this now? So we had all this experience where he was going in and out of the VA, probably the first two years Mm -hmm. that he was out. And and you Um, mentioned earlier, sorry, Heidi, but you mentioned earlier, now you're talking about yourself, um, starting to cope with this through alcohol. But in the, in the first, uh, first deployment when David was away, you mentioned that you already had anxiety when, when the deployment was actually good. Uh, you had anxiety yes. then. So where's that anxiety now? And now the, oh. the, the sleep for both of you, uh, how, how is sleeping? And yeah. so, so the drinking is actually your w- coming to be your way of dealing with what you really don't know how to deal with. Right. So the first deployment, I actually got on medication because I wasn't sleeping. And, but I was sober and I had been, I had actually been in recovery for several years. Um, The second deployment that when he came home from the second deployment, then I relapsed. And so I'm drinking and I'm on pills to try Cause I'm like seeing a psychiatrist now myself. And that was kind of that I'm on these meds and I'm so maxed out. I'm so stressed out. Sometimes the only way I could go to sleep was to drink, which is exactly what David was doing, too. And, you know, I had my own trauma in life just from, you know, the marriage with his dad. Some of that, some stuff was getting triggered by some of the way that David would talk to me or treat me, you know, because when he would be drunk or high or something, he could be very abusive. And, in fact, in some ways, like his father. And so I'm like starting to unravel, like big time. I'm unraveling. And and that was the course of, so the first couple years, in and out, in and out. And then he decided, okay, that's it. I'm going to go, I need to leave it all. I'm going to Alaska. And I thought, well, okay, you know, maybe a change, maybe getting out of here is what he needs. And so the family sees him off. He gets on a bus and he stopped. He went as far as Seattle and he got on a fishing boat and he started like he had these great pictures and I was posting these pictures and sharing them. I now have this little community of online moms whose sons are in prison or not doing good. And we're all encouraging each other. And he is, um, he's on this fishing boat, and I'm so excited, and I think he's doing good, until he relapsed and disappeared. And he was somewhere in Seattle. So I'm calling every veterans organization I can. My son's in danger. He's out there. He's homeless somewhere. I had the, the street people, you know, the vets people out in the streets looking for him. I was calling everybody find him, lock him up. He can't take care of himself. Somebody has to help him. You know, I was kind of like being a pest. I was chasing him wherever he went. I was only a few steps behind him. 
And, but I was so, I had become so obsessed with like, I have to save him. I have to save him. And so that did not go well in Seattle. So he came back and then he got into even more trouble. And this is what really got him into the legal system. And it was behind drinking and acting out. Um, and that's where he got into like the VA veterans court system in Wisconsin. And, you know, my mom and I would go to the hearings and think, okay, he's got, he's in veterans court. This is going to be a, he's going to have a chance. And then he would go to, like, he went to the different VAs in Wisconsin. It was like, okay, good. You know, I've got pictures with him when he was, I think it was in Milwaukee at this point. And I'm trying to find people in Milwaukee to help him. And I found a few people. My son really needs support. Can you help him? And and then he would go out and get, like, he would get messed up and get kicked out of the program. And so I'm like, well, no, give him another chance. He needs to have another, I'm talking to people at the VA. Really, you know, he just give him another chance. He's got it in him. He'll be okay. He just needs help right now. And, and then, you know, sometimes through phone calls of people who knew people, we got him back in. And then it was a matter of time and he would leave again or he'd use, be caught using and get kicked out. And then DUIs, stuff like that. Everything's adding up, adding up to the point where now he's looking at prison. He's kicked out of the veterans court. He's looking at prison. I'm getting letters of support. Anybody who's ever known him, please send letters so that just to attest to the kind of person he was before, you know, trying to advocate on his behalf. And um, he had a couple chances and then that was it. And the judge and I'm there at the hearing. My mom's there at the hearing and they sentenced him to prison. And oh, I can't even tell you the pain you know, they, they let him in. He was in the, he had been in the county jail for quite some time. And I got to know really well those systems, the phone systems that charge you like $5 for what a 10 minute call and how the families then, now I'm on the other side and there's no more rah rah flag waving. Now I'm the mother of a convict, you know, to some people. There are people along the way who said, just write them off be done. You need to take care of yourself. I'm like, no, he's my son. I will never, I won't. And now I'm in the courtroom and he's let in in shackles, his hands, his feet. Um, he's all shackled and he looks back and I'm sitting back there. I'm crying like this can't be, this just can't be happening. And he was sentenced, I can't even remember, I think maybe the first time he was sentenced to two years. He had a big, long sentence, but they were going to do chunks at a time. So a couple years, and then he was going to have the opportunity to go into another program from there, something like, I don't remember all of the details. Things kind of blur because it was prison, treatment prison, back and forth. My faith sustained me. My mom's group helped me get through so much. If I wouldn't have had them, I would have completely self-destructed. And out of that, at the same time, which is amazing, like I'm going through this, but at the same time, I took my experience and my son's experience and in the work I was doing with men who are court-ordered for domestic violence, I was thinking, we have, we're a big program. I would teach a Monday night class where there'd be, you know, sometimes 60 men in the group. And I started thinking about if my son's dealing with this, how many veterans do we have in this program who are getting triggered by the classroom setting or who need a different kind of treatment? And I said, and so I approached the directors. I'm like, we need a, a veteran-specific group for domestic violence. And they're like, well, Heidi, we need to see if it's feasible and you need to start, you know, getting the information, see if we'll even do it. And so I started doing these questionnaires in part of our intakes and found that we actually had a whole lot of veterans that were coming to our program. 
And um, I presented the numbers. I started going on some talk radio and some different shows to try to raise money for the program. First, I hired a, a army a former army ranger. He had done like 13 deployments. He was a therapist now. And actually, he was... I had him go visit prior to, to us working together. I knew him and some of his work, and I had had him go visit David at the VA, and he told me, Heidi, I have never met anyone with such self-loathing. And it just it broke my heart. But Hector and I started working together to get the numbers together about Okay, how are we going to do this? We need to raise the funds. Started working. I went on a little show, uh, a Navy SEAL, who was was looking for a way to help veterans. I went on his radio show. We went, he he had several other Navy SEAL friends who are businessmen now. We spoke on a panel before them. I started going, working with the um, Veterans Court and the Vet Center and the VA. So I'm like, I had segments in my life. I had my professional career little box that I you know, was very professional and had it together. And then I had this piece over here that was really in a lot of pain and self-medicating and trying to deal with what was happening with my son. But Hector and I worked together. I mean, we, we came out of that one meeting with like $30,000 for startup. Within like three months, we raised $90,000. And we actually created a program. It was the only program of its kind in the entire US. Um, It was called the Change Step Program. And it's the proudest thing. It's, It's like my crowning achievement of my career. And it is now in like the Marine Corps bought it, the Air Force bought that we developed a curriculum for all these vets coming back who are having domestic violence issues. And Hector and I went, you know, we presented at uh, International Conference on Trauma, you know, met really good people along the way. Unfortunately, I transferred a little bit of my motherness on Hector. He was a bit younger than me. And so I kind of mothered him much to his chagrin. <laughs> like, here's this army ranger who's done 13 deployments. And I'm like, are you doing okay today? And I, I, I was, you know, I think I was a little irritating, but so, that was a good piece. So, so yeah. now you've got David in prison. You're developing these relationships that are helping you cope with this. And you're right. also developing programs for others, veterans who may be in the same situation. But now yes. let's move forward to where David continues. You, 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 you've, suggested earlier this wouldn't be his first time in prison. So he must come out of prison and then goes back in prison. But take us up to uh, the significant moments for David in prison. Well, so I, you know, I would go visit him as much as I could. And I would bring family members along with. And the first very poignant thing about prison that I remember he had to go down to Dodge Correctional Facility where everybody goes before they go to whatever prison they're going to. And he was really, really sick with like the flu or something. And he wrote this letter to me about, and they were locked down 23 hours a day. I couldn't go see him or anything. And they couldn't call, nothing like that. And he said, I'm, I feel like an animal. I'm losing my mind. And he was telling me how sick he was and I'm losing it. I should be dead. It was, the letter was so horrifying. And in fact, when I was before that board with those business guys, the SEALs, um, I, that was one of the pieces that I brought up to them. I just got a letter from my son and this is what he said. And I started bawling and like, Maybe that's what opened up the checkbooks. I don't know. It was so, it was gut-wrenching. And I was so worried about him. And that's when he got sent to Stanley. You know, I was glad that I'd be able to visit him. So prior to prison was a lot of jail. In and out, jail, in and out. Now prison, this was a substantial chunk of time. And then David started writing, doing rap music, where he was pouring his feelings in. And he wanted me to, 
this was kind of funny. He wanted me to copyright his stuff and, you know, type it and then get the copyright. I read like maybe three of the raps and they were so horrifying to me because it incorporated stuff from Iraq, stuff like seeing a child killed and bleeding out. And I'm reading through this. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't read plus a whole lot of cussing and stuff. Um, and I'm like, I can't, I can't read all of this. And so I just went ahead and left it as it was and got a copyright for his music. And then we were able to email back and forth. And what I did to keep him in touch with the outside world, I took over his Facebook page and, you know, he had given me the password and stuff. And I started communicating back and forth between him. He would email me stuff. I would put it on Facebook um, his army buddies, all of them would respond. I would cut and paste everything that they said, send it in an email back to David. So back and forth, back and forth. And then his, I ended up being friends, Facebook friends with a lot of his army buddies. And they got the information from me how to go visit him. But it was a pretty constant thing back and forth. I'm always updating his Facebook page. And some of the stuff I learned through that was like, about some of the battles, pictures of when the Humvee was blown up and the tire is shredded. I'm seeing this stuff like for the first time. And like, I wanted to puke sometimes. I just, I couldn't believe like, you know, of course I didn't know all of that, but through the conversations between him and his army buddies with me as the mediary, I'm learning some of this stuff. And um, and then I'm visiting him and the whole experience from being flag waving military mom to being a mom has to go through the metal detector and not have one single bit of metal on or you have to keep going back through like just hum very humiliating stuff and looked at like you're the scum of the earth. Let me ask you a question here. A couple of questions, actually. It's a fascinating story. So now David's uh, in Stanley Prison, which I believe in Wisconsin is maximum security, or if I'm not mistaken, or, or, or is it? I believe it was medium. Medium security. But there was a lot of issues with that prison. There had been a lot of suicides. Right. There was a lot of, like, complaints against yeah. it. A lot of racism in prison, a lot, a lot of issues yes. for anybody who's in prison. But what, what's interesting, yes. I believe when you go to prison in the state of Wisconsin, if you're a veteran, you lose all your mental health benefits. You're not getting any counseling. I, I believe you might have access to a social worker uh, once a month for a half an hour or an hour or something like right. that. So I'm not so sure if this is a fair thing to say. If he's writing these things about war in his rap music, this has got to be therapy for him, even though he's not yes. recognizing. I mean, this must be like a desperate act to get this stuff out of my head, get it on paper, what's tormenting yeah. him. So it, it, you're actually helping him by, by letting him continue to creatively get this stuff out of his head. Right. And that's how I saw it. And that's, and even with the back and forth on Facebook with his buddies, it was like a lifeline and, and I was so disgusted when when he went to prison and there was nothing for him. I, I had called, we had called to get the vet rep down to see him. And basically all they said was, well, we're done with you until you get out. So, and that was it. And so, and there were times he would go into solitary um, or in the hole. And I was in anguish because... I'm thinking he's in there with his nightmares. Oh, I just wanted to just hold him. I just wanted to take care of him. I was so scared for him. From there, I think he went to Chippewa Treatment Facility, which is a minimum security. When he was released, he relapsed. When he relapsed, he got picked up again. And we went to that final hearing where the judge was either going to give him like 10 years or whatever portion they were going to give him. And we got all his military buddies to meet us. I was contacting everybody. I had like letters coming from all over the U.S. in support of him. And a whole bunch of his, his army buddies showed up to that hearing. And that was beautiful. And he had someone very special who was a mentor to him that came to that hearing and spoke on his behalf. His grandma spoke on his behalf. 
Um, it was a pretty it was a pretty intense hearing. And the judge did give him a couple months of his sentence and kind of, I think, maybe just to process him out. And then all of his buddies went over to visit him. You know, you had to do it through the, the monitor. And they were laughing and joking and remembering military stories. It was so beautiful to see. He was laughing and laughing, and that was really great. So he came out, and he settled in Eau Claire, and he met uh, he met his current wife. He got into he didn't want to do the medication route, and he was in the veterans court. He was working with a team. Um, he got into CrossFit, and while he had been in prison, one thing that kept his sanity he did a lot of calisthenics, and he would do like a thousand push-ups or sit-ups, you know, just kind of crazy. But it kept him, it kept him through some really tough patches. So he, he dived into CrossFit and he met his, his current wife and she was in CrossFit. And so, he, and he went back to college a year ago, last December, he completed his bachelor's degree. He started doing a lot of writing, a lot of creative writing. And he started working with, um, started doing work with veterans. He spoke at some conferences, did a lot of work around incarcerated veterans. And today now is working actually as a, um, a counselor, like a peer mentor position with uh, adolescents who are struggling and working with the ACLU, especially around the rights of incarcerated uh, people. And still involved in veterans work as well. He and his wife have my two beloved grandbabies. Uh, one is two years old and the one, other one was just born a few weeks ago. And so David has come through this whole process. Um, oh, what a journey. I mean, it's been an amazing journey and it's amazing that he's alive. But he's doing so much good, and he's found a way to, to um, you know, when those times come where he has memories or nightmares, he's able to deal with it naturally. You know, he walks through those times, and his wife is very supportive. And I love him, and I'm so proud of him. And, you know, I'm not really involved a whole lot anymore in anything with uh, veterans work. I'm working with elementary kids, and it's such a, like, oh, it's a breath of fresh air. We are speaking with Heidi Carlson, who is the mother of former Army Sergeant David Carlson, right. who had two tours in Iraq, uh, one, the first one successful, the one not, not so successful, uh, who came home had a lot of difficulties with abuse, substance abuse, alcohol, uh, went to prison for quite a while, and you're very proud of him, but I think I can make you a little bit more proud of him. Um, because I have spoken with David, and when he came out of prison, he said, I am never going back to that place again. He was yep. so horrified of this place that was so racist and full of hatred and full of anger and the fist fights he had and the blood-curdling fights he had. And then sitting in the hole, he had gotten really to the lowest point in his life and said, I'm not going yep. back there again. But when he came back out and made this determination to go on to college, I think it's only fair to say that he gr graduated with honors. Yes. In English. And we're yes. not. <laughs> so he didn't just kind of flighty and get through school. He graduated with honors in English right. and is now doing so well uh, working for milkweed with children who are coming from yep. difficult backgrounds. Uh, but yep. it, it's so such a wonderful story. But I want to stay on the milita military side of the family because here you are, the okay. mother who went through these, these things that have been very, very traumatizing for you. You still have the memories walking into the VA hospitals. You have uh, relapsed yourself with alcohol. Uh, if, if you stop and think now back on this experience, is there something else you would have done, could have done? Is there something for those women or families in, in the audience who are going through something similar to this that you could suggest or recommend that they... Um, at least go see the, the county veterans service officer or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are more resources available than back then. And so I would reach out and find and just keep 
looking for support. You know, don't give up. Just keep looking. And I would say take care of yourself in the process. You know, I've been sober now for four and a half years, and my life has completely changed. And so, you know, there's a tendency to just, it's so overwhelming. You get buried underneath all of that. So you have to take care of yourself. But as a mom, I wouldn't, I would still chase behind him everywhere he went. If I would have had to go out to Seattle and go search those woods for him, I would have. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my son. Heidi, you do mention two things that are very, very similar for veterans. And, and of course, a lot of us who are veterans, uh, many of us who are veterans, don't recognize that we're uh, oftentimes think we're alone. We're the only people going through this, the only veteran going through this. There's a stigma. I can't let anybody know I'm going through this. I can't let anybody know that I'm having any kind of a weakness, that I haven't up, upheld my my duties as a soldier and as a man or something like that because I'm having nightmares or flashbacks or difficulty dealing with the, the reactions I'm having. And for, so for a lot of us, including myself, meeting other veterans was very, very important to me mm. when I met them at the VA hospital in Toma. You mentioned two things when you were speaking along there that really caught my eye, uh, or caught my ear. And one of them was when you were introduced to your mother's group who were very, very supportive. And when you were introduced to another group of women, I think you believe, I think you mentioned Jamie, someone, uh, the name yes. of Jamie. You got into these groups where people had similar situations, similar experiences. And you, I could even tell by your voice that these were very, very helpful for you to be with people who are having similar experiences. That is so true. I I honestly don't think I would have made it through without them. And even though everything was bad for all of us, it was just a nightmare. We were able to just kind of love on each other and support each other. And the big thing is, no, we're not alone. And and that made such a huge difference because it's like everybody's out here with these celebrations and welcome home and the yellow ribbons and all of that, and that's wonderful. But it's not always easy after that. And so that was life-saving to me. And I think that that's important. You know, if you're a mom that's struggling and you're all by yourself, you think you're all by yourself, you're not. And to find support with other moms it's so crucial. This has been an absolutely, as we were looking for, educational uh, story for us, uh, history for us. Heidi Carlson, mother of two sons, but mother of yes. one son, David, who had uh, in the Army two tours in Iraq and uh, some mm-hmm. tours in prison and has come back out. And it's got to be just a joy for you to see these loving grandchildren that you are so proud of and to have stayed with them this whole time. And, and I have to say, in all the years that I've been working with with veterans, uh, and, and I want to be very careful how I say this, I have never seen anything more powerful. I guess I'm not being very careful. Uh, I'm not, I've never seen anything as powerful as a, the love a mother has for her, her sons or her daughters who are in the military. The, the worry, yeah. the anxiety, the, the nightmares, the, the, the difficulty sleeping, all of these things. So uh, I, I would personally like to thank you for being a mother, number one, but to have raised mm-hmm. some really, really wonderful children. And, and thank you for all that you have come and shared with us today uh, in, in your experience as a military family. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you too. Okay. So I, I want to thank our audience uh, for staying with us on another episode of Stigma Free Vet Zone. And we are funded by the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, which we're very honored to um, be funded by. And our sound engineers today are Mark Heleniak, Ben Slane, and Minnie Kang from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Just want to remind everyone for some more of these helpful resources, please visit our website at www.orbanfoundationforveterans.org or more simply just the letters O, F, the number four, vets.org. So for Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban, and thank you for joining us on another wonderful educational session of Stigma-Free Vet Zone.